Hey everyone, before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies, genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me, but now on with the program. Capital is going to be more efficient in the metaverse. Therefore, all the capital is going to go into the metaverse away from the nation state which will cause the nation say a very significant amount of frustration. Uh, and so, yeah, dude, a lot of local economies are really going to suffer because everyone's going to start working in the digital economies. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by Mr. David Hoffman of Bankless. What's going on, David? Hey, man. Glad to be here. This is going to be fun. Yeah, dude. I'm really excited, too. Uh, now that we did the technical difficulties 30 minutes before this, uh, <laughs> we're both in a nice and frustrated mood to have a nice uh, casual conversation. Um, so let's just let's just get right into it. Uh, so I listened to that interview that you and Ryan did on Bankless, and you know this is even though Blockworks is a crypto company, uh, we've actually never done a crypto interview uh, on this show. But I listened to the way you guys outlined the metaverse, and I just had to get you on here because I loved the framework that you approach it from. You talked about Hobbes uh, and the Leviathan. So really sort of from a nice like 10,000 foot level, uh, which the history nerd in me absolutely loves. Uh, so let's start with just super, super basics, talking about the metaverse. How do you define what the metaverse is? What's your framework for looking at it? Right, yeah. So the in my mind, the metaverse, whatever it is, because so many different, depending on the industry, you think that you have a chunk of the metaverse, right? Like the VR industry thinks it owns the metaverse. Uh, the NFT industry thinks it owns the metaverse. Uh, you know, everything everything is apparently the metaverse, right? And and so like that's not really a helpful mental model. It's like, well, if everything is the metaverse, well then nothing is the metaverse, right? Uh, at that point, it just boils down to like, oh, are you on the internet? Cool, you're in the metaverse. And I think that's kind of a cop out answer. Uh, and so the the metaverse. We, we, everyone, like, their mind goes to um, Ready Player One, right? Like, that's what the metaverse is. That's, like, the, the best illustration of the metaverse that we've ever had. It's, like, this virtual world that you step into. VR is, like, the technology you need to get into that world. But in, in Ready Player One, you can definitely see elements of a metaverse that would require a property rights management system. Right? There are actual things in Ready Player One. There's artifacts that people find. There's money that people find. There's scarce resources. Uh, and so whatever the metaverse is, it needs to have a system of property rights management. It needs to have objects inside of it, things, nouns, and those nouns need to be able to interact with each other. Because what, what the metaverse is, is it's a digital representation of the physical world and it needs to mimic some of the properties of the physical world. And one of the core fundamental properties of what the physical world is, is that one atom is that atom and not a different atom. And so therefore we need some sort of like boundaries or borders around objects that define the object and allow that object to manifest and then have those objects be related to other objects, have a relational relationship with other objects so that two objects in the metaverse can collide like how two objects in the real world also collide. Uh, and so what that implies is that there needs to be a central registry of objects so that when we do have this VR, internet, Zoom, gaming versions of like corners of the internet, that they are actually all acknowledging the same central registry of objects. And when objects can um, leave one corner of whatever the metaverse is, 
it can go to a different corner of the metaverse. And that's actually how you leave it a decent amount of the metaverse decently well undefined and kind of allow that the whatever the metaverse is to be dictated by the developers of that current that corner of the metaverse because all of these metaverse developers be it VR or like you know gaming your Xbox that corner of the metaverse how it actually appears can be up to that specific region but so long as all of these different regions answer to the same registry of objects so in summary the answer of your question is what is the metaverse it's many different things but at the commonality, the thing that stitches everything together is a common backbone of asset registries. So all corners of the metaverse answer to all the same objects. And when all the ob objects of the metaverse are accounted for, that's what we can start to build a universe around all of these objects. But the, the core, the backbone, the skeleton is this property rights management system that all the corners of the metaverse answer towards. Yeah, I think the property rights thing, uh, that was a big takeaway that I had listening to your interview. I feel like when it comes to the metaverse, uh, it's going to be something like the internet. Like, how, how often do people spend time debating what the internet is and why it's important now? It's just a facet of our lives. How often did people spend time debating about it in the 90s? Very, very often. Uh, but we're all, you know, these simple <laughs> monkey brain uh, type people at the end of the day. And analogy is always imperfect, but it's helpful, right? It gives us schemas and ways that we can understand different things. Um one thing I, I thought about uh, listening to your interview was, you know, in 2017, there was a very common metaphor that people used to use about blockchains, which is like we're building cities, right? And that was kind of a helpful idea. Like you're building things on a protocol, apps on a protocol is kind of like building, you know, developing real estate in the real world. And the more you develop, the more it becomes valuable, et cetera. Um, you actually started from an even higher level, right? And I know you'd like to talk about this on Bankless Nation, right? So you actually kind of talked about it from the level of the nation state, right? Mm -hmm. So when you kind of think about these as like a form of governance, crypto as a coordination mechanism, talk us through like, what's a helpful analogy that we can just use to understand, you know, is the metaverse like a nation state and it's kind of governing property rights? Is it like a city where you're building things inside there and people can interact? Give us like a simple schema to, to help understand this. Yeah, the, the schema that I've always been fascinated about is that um, humanity always uh, finds ways to organize itself better and better throughout history. And even before nation states, what, the nation state, the concept of a nation state can actually be framed as like a technological innovation. Uh, nation states exist because they are the best coordinating infrastructure that humans have ever come up with. Uh, and even before that, religion was the next largest scalable social structure when it comes to human coordination. So back in the, the days where like uh, religion dominated the world, you could have one person on one corner of the globe and another person on a different corner of the globe. One day, these two travelers meet, and they've, they are com from completely different domains, but because they are of the same religion, they can assume that the other person that they, are just, that they just met, they can trust that person because they rely on the same stories, the same narrative about how the world works, how the universe works. Same, and with the innovation behind nation states is that when somebody is in Florida, so somebody else is in Washington, these are like 4,000 miles away, but while they are very, very separated geographically, they answer to the same protocols. As in, well, King County, Washington, Seattle, Washington operates by its rules, and those rules are distinct from the rules in Florida, but both, but both Miami, Florida, and Seattle, Washington operate under the same protocol, which is the federal government of the United States of America, which is really just a way to communicate protocols across vast differences. And going back to religion, what is the Bible other than a protocol on how to live? And what is nation state laws other than protocols on how to live? And so 
the understanding blockchains, blockchains operate a lot of the same roles and responsibilities that nation states do. Pro- property rights is of, of, like actually, honestly, the biggest one in my opinion. Uh, and so Ethereum as this smart contract platform can control, can, can, we can outsource the roles and responsibilities that nation states have, which is property rights management, and give that to Ethereum. But that, I feel like that perspective is actually a 2D perspective as to what to Ethereum is. Uh, and what it's ultimately going to be. And the metaverse is actually the 3D answer to that, right? What is Ethereum? It does similar things as nation states like property rights. But what is it really is it's a property rights management system in the cloud, in the virtual world. And while the, the concept of like real world asset tokenization is cool, what's cooler in my mind is are digitally native assets that exist only exclusively on Ethereum. And so this... this um, it goes from like the the idea goes from a two D to a three D representation of what it means to have cryptocurrencies or blockchains or you know digital assets. Cool, digital assets are are neat, but now it's digital assets inside of a digital world, inside of a digital universe. Uh, and and so not only is it do we have digital assets, but now we have a digital world to play with those digital assets. And that digital world is something that man- manifests itself around the assets. Right. It's kind of like a sandbox model versus a walled garden type thing. Yeah. And uh, walled gardens, you know, Apple's probably built the most successful walled garden of all time. Everything kind of works seamlessly in that ecosystem. But at the end of the day, if you're able to gain critical mass in a sandbox model and you have all of these different people contributing, I don't know. It seems like that's pretty hard to, to take over. Um, so let's try to put some boundaries around because, you know, the one kind of objection that I feel like comes up in a lot of people's minds and like my mind too when I start thinking about this is, okay, I hear what you're saying. Maybe there are some some pro- some areas, right, like property rights management that the metaverse could actually do better than governments. Uh, there are obviously some things that the metaverse can't govern, right? Mm-hmm. Like we do still live in a physical world. Uh, so like the metaverse is never really going to be able to solve like the problem that police solve, right, for instance. Um, so when you kind of think about the functions of a government and how people live their lives in the real world versus the more and more time that they're spending digitally in this sort of metaverse region. What do you think, like, how would you divide the responsibilities of a government versus, uh, I don't know, things that could be managed by an open source blockchain like Ethereum? Right. Um, going back to that ability to, to exit, the ability to exit, the fact that that exists at all is a big check on nation states. Uh, and so, um, the idea is that we will be uploading as much value as possible into the metaverse because that's where value gets most more, most expressed and where people can better leverage their capital. It's just going to be capital is going to be more efficient in the metaverse. Therefore, all the capital is going to go into the metaverse away from the nation state, which will cause the nation state a very significant amount of frustration. And so the theory is that because of the reduced amount of tax revenue, nation states, the roles and responsibility of nation states actually boils down to the bare minimum of the services that they actually provide their, um, their constituents, right? Like, right. do the tax, does the tax revenue actually justify the services that nation states provide their citizens? And the ability to exit actually puts a, a check on that. And so one of the, the, and this is where Nick Carter has that, um, piece uh, the article a most peaceful revolution which basically mm-hmm. says that like because because we're going to value bitcoin more than a dollar it's actually going to defund the nation state's ability to like host a military and in theory like hopefully that actually creates a more peaceful world because nation states can no longer fund military endeavors as much as they could have anymore i think you know 
one personal theory I have for folks that don't believe in blockchain or crypto at this point, which I have a lot of sympathy for, but like if you scratch hard enough, I think the answer that you come down to is that you can't touch it. That's just my personal view on it. Like if you really, it's kind of like that C.S. Lewis quote, at the bottom of every system of logic, there's a human assumption if you dig mm -hmm. deep enough. And I think every criticism of crypto comes down to the fact that you actually can't touch it and hold right. it. Uh, like if you really ask enough questions. And to me, the metaverse is the continuation of a lot of important trends, both on like the human nation state and governance kind of standpoint, just if you track kind of the system of monarchy to more like open democratic republics, et cetera, letting people choose and opt into their government. And then there's this idea of, it kind of started with PCs and then the internet, people spending more and more of their life online and things that are real. You know, it used to be like, if it's real, it's in the real world. And if it's online, it's somehow not real. I think our generation doesn't think like that. I know the generation below us definitely doesn't think like that at all. So it almost kind of makes sense. Like you could draw kind of a direct analogy in the form of government kind of evolving or changing, right? From these like rigid held monarchies, although that's kind of making a comeback <laughs> over mm. in the East a little bit. Uh, and, uh, you know, to something that's more open um, to these like kind of web two companies, uh, you know, with their like little fiefdoms and walled gardens that are very closely held to something that's more open, right? That everyone can opt into and and build on, I guess. Um, and yeah, I see crypto as being at the very heart of that, right? So I guess, you know, transitioning to stuff that's actually happening today, right? Like, there are lots of things that are happening, right? There's like, uh, you know, ETH is maybe kind of like the backbone and property rights management system and currency of the metaverse. There's like NFTs, which are maybe like the very first beginnings of property in the metaverse. Like, what are some of the things that you're looking at that are like, man, this is freaking exciting. Like, I get out of bed and I'm like hyped to learn about this. Something I think that is bubbling under the surface that I think is about to explode Maybe, maybe at the start of 2022-ish, is uh, in-game assets, Ethereum-based assets that are inside of games. Uh, and this is going to be a big aha moment for a lot of people uh, because that is going to be the first time, like, say we have two, two games. We've got Fortnite and um, uh, Minecraft, two unrelated games. Uh, and you... But now, for some reason, both of these games have decided to include Ethereum-based assets into their game. And so, like, when you actually take, when you actually, like, play in Fortnite, play for a couple hours, you find, like, a bunch of currency or something, you get rewarded with a bunch of currency, you can, because that's an Ethereum-based token, you can take that to DeFi. And before the metaverse actually stitches together and, like, Fortnite and, um, what, I, what, what game did I just say? Uh, Minecraft, yeah. Before Fortnite and Minecraft become the same thing, if they ever will, perhaps not, they will first be connected by DeFi, right? And so the, the labor that you put into Fortnite, earning in-game assets that are also assets on Ethereum, can there be, therefore be translated to Minecraft. And, and so like you do, do grind really hard in Fortnite, make like $100, take it to Uniswap, swap it for like a hundred dollars of minecraft dollars and then boom like the labor that you spent in fortnite actually translates to real value in minecraft or whatever other game is actually stitched into this thing and that's going to be that's going to be like some of the earliest foundations like the metaverse it won't be like this seamless world where you just hop from game to game to game and like everything goes with you it'll first be uh, coupled by DeFi, where the time and labor and energy that you go into grinding for in-game assets in one game can also manifest as equivalent labor in a different game elsewhere. Uh, and that's that's what, how I think things are going to happen first, and it's going to be a big aha moment for, for a lot of people. Right. 
Yeah. And you know what? I, actually, that's a really great way of defining. I mean, boy, I kind of think sometimes in terms of business models in general, right? Like if you think about folks that created these walled gardens, they kind of built their own internal economies. A lot of the way they monetize um, was on like, to do like, you know, just selling games in their own little their own little fiefdom. But you could very see, easily see like a flipping on its head. And if there's a, a way to communicate property rights outside of the little fiefdom walled gardens, that becomes orders of magnitude larger. People then want those items and therefore then these people who had these estates that looked very large in the digital realm before, they start to look much smaller. And it's like, hey, can we like interact with you guys out here in the real world? You know, it's kind of the way that I uh, think about it a little bit. Um, I'd love to get your take on this in general, because one trend that I've kind of noticed in our ecosystem of crypto, without community, that would have been worthless, right? Like if you had just released a token and there had been words, it would have been completely useless. The only reason there is a shot at being utility is because there's enough po people that believe in this shared narrative that there's, uh, and for that, you need a community. One other thing I've noticed, like even with like Board Ape Yacht Club, uh, is you almost like start with the community first and then back into the product, which is like totally backwards from how businesses got built. Um, I don't know if you've noticed the same trend or like what your thoughts are on the importance of community, if it makes sense to build community first, then like back into a project. Like, how do you think about that whole trend that's happening in our ecosystem? Yeah, it's very, very chaotic, right? But there is, there is something there with regards to like, if without community, there is actually, there isn't actually anything. Uh, and yeah. I know Raul Paul has been focused on this as well. Like communities are actually the new alpha as in yeah. like, this is where communities are the new investable paradigm. Uh, mm. And because uh, one of the cool things that I like to say about the world of crypto is that it actually aligns human values and the market value of our assets better than any other technology has ever before. Mm. And how do you know what humans value? Well, the answer is, is there a community there? Like, do, is there a, did a community form around these values? Around, and so, like, you have all these different communities out there. You have, like, the Bankless DAO, and that Bankless community is aligned around, like, the Bankless vision, like, propagating Bankless culture. Uh, you also have Friends with Benefits, which has its own set of values and goals for itself. And to what degree those values and goals are... Uh, scalable and shared by a larger set of people, you have a growing community around those people who are willing to expend labor or capital to buy things that align with those values. Uh, and so that's why tokens are so powerful, right? They're actually like a community organizing event. Bankless DAO didn't exist until the bank token was created. And all of a sudden, all these nebulous set of people all over the world had something to rally around, right? They had something to a totem, right? A shared totem where like the, the, this token actually embodies the values of the bankless community and the bankless community can focus their energies and attention upon that token. And them doing that in theory makes the token more valuable to people that share those values. Uh, and so whether it's like backing, creating a community and backing into a token or using a token to create a community, I don't know. But it's got to be, there's got to be a community there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Um, so like zooming out, like the way that I kind of define the metaverse, returning to that central question that we had at the beginning of this podcast, is just people spending more and more time online. And there are new coordination mechanisms that facilitate that. So I, I don't think it's going to be this thing where like a neat, everything like fits into boxes that it, the same boxes that were their analogs. 
but uh, like maybe Bitcoin and ETH are kind of currency um, in this new world. And DAOs have replaced companies as like an organiz organizational structure. DeFi is the way that value gets communicated and transported, right? It kind of replaces our financial markets. Maybe NFTs are the beginnings of property. Um, and gaming is like work uh, in this new <laughs> economy, which is like a weird, uh, you know, it's like what people go there to do. Um, I, I actually see it as, because the big question, right, is like, okay, people spend a lot of their time online. They do it in these centralized kind of, uh, you know, like Epic Games, right, or like Fortnite. Uh, guess what? They're centralized. They've had a really long time to perfect this. It's freaking, it's fun. <laughs> I don't know if you played this shit. It's really fun. So how do we, what's like the tip of the spear? How do we get people away from these sandboxes to like give them a better experience in the metaverse? Is it gaming? Is it the promise of like financial, you know, freedom and appreciation by buying these assets? Like, what do you think is like the thing that sucks people in, I guess? Right. Well, um, first and foremost, it's definitely gaming and work is are going to get a little bit closer to each other. So yeah. gr granted that comes with a negative side where like gaming is going to seem a little bit more like work, which is <laughs> kind of less fun, but not all, right. not, all, not all aspects of gaming. But as soon as you have in-game economies and we've seen in-game economies develop, right? World of Warcraft had an in-game economy before crypto was even a thing, right? So people would actually make more money than their minimum wage grinding for gold in Warcraft and then selling it for actual money in their, country of residence and they would make that that was their job crypto is just formalizing that and just rather than than like blizzard trying to ban people that are doing that crypto gaming is like hey let's make more of that and that actually kind of flips what a game studio is on its head rather than just like hey we're a centralized company a for-profit trying to extract as much revenue from our uh, from our community as possible it flips on its head and goes like hey can we make an in-game economy that makes our players as wealthy as possible? And that's what we're seeing with Axie Infinity, right? Like yeah. one thing that Axie Infinity did really, really well is made all of its players extremely wealthy because it has its own GDP, its own, like it's its own nation. They literally call themselves the Axie Nation uh, and the value of those assets have gone up. Now there's also a bunch of people that are straight up just playing the Axie game as work. Are they having fun? Like, well, I mean, maybe it's more fun than like flipping burgers at McDonald's, but they are grinding, right? It's like there, there was a, a time where I was a, a huge gym rat and then I became a personal trainer. And as soon as I became a personal trainer, like I stopped going to the gym. I was like, well, I don't want to work out anymore. Like it's my work. I think that's definitely going to happen. That's but also at the same yeah. time, like we've made playing video games work. Like it's kind of like what every child's like utopic vision of the future is when they're young. Right. Like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Well, I want to play video games. Uh, and like, who knows? Like, go figure after like three generations all grow up playing video games that we finally when, once these uh, generations are now in their like labor years, they figure out a way to just play video games and actually have that be work. Right. We figure that out. Uh, and so mm. what's going to pull people in is like you are literally going to be able to play video games for money and you're going to retain the value and time that you inject into these games and receive back capital, which is going to be really, really cool. Uh, and then also there's going to be some sort of like the, another big pull is going to be the community aspect of these things, right? Uh, we always say this on, on, on Bankless. Ryan always closes this out. Um, there's, there's risks out there, but we are glad you are with us on the Bankless journey, right? It's Headed a whole west. idea. Hey, we're heading west, right? And if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Uh, and so while we are transcending this metaverse and learning how to like work by playing video games, there's also going to be people that team up and do these things. And it's going to become a, a team sport. 
And that's just like one of the premonitions of a fund, right? Like, so a, a guild, a DAO, a fund, and playing video games are all going to like kind of cohere into one single activity. And that's going to be like a really compelling thing to do. Super compelling. And I have a theory. So there was a great interview with, um, I'm going to mispronounce, Gabby Dizon. Uh, mm -hmm. He's the, the Yield Guild Games guy. Uh, did it on um, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best. And, you know, he's describing this, uh, you know, in-game economy, right, of Axie. And I, I don't even know how large. The, I know they're supposed to do like $4 billion in revenue this year or something like that. Um, but, like, just, like, picture this for a second, right? Uh, so let's say that you could, over the course of the next decade or something, you could 10 or 50x that, right? So you'd be looking at an in-game economy, right? This kind of weird economy that exists in cyberspace of, uh, you know, between 30 and like call it $60 billion. It's funny because a lot of the people that are playing that game, they happen to just be located in the Philippines, right? Imagine this situation and they're making way more money than they were by earning like in their local currency before. Mm -hmm. So imagine there's this weird situation where you had like 50% of the people in the Philippines playing this game and they've 10x their salary because they're not subject to their local currency or labor pool or whatever. What does that do to that country, man? Think about the insane inflation that would happen, right? If suddenly half the percent of the population are operating completely outside of government controls around currency, local labor markets, etc. That's like really exciting, but holy shit, man, that's that's disruptive as hell uh, to to governments. Um, I feel like people are missing that because people focus a lot on Bitcoin. It's like, oh, that's going to wrest currency away from governments. Might be gaming, man. It might be gaming. Like, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I can see it, that happening. It's it's the whole it's it's the whole concept of crypto at large, right? Like, Bitcoiners and and Bitcoin itself know that Bitcoin is going to end fiat money because it's going to allow people to exit out of their fiat money and into Bitcoin. Well, extrapolating that to gaming, well, there's going to be gaming economies that are way significantly bigger than real countries' GDPs. And mm -hmm. like people, people come into the crypto space and they see, they see like these uh, very beginning projects generate like five billion dollars in total in the market cap, and they get astounded when they compare that to like you know legacy companies on the stock market. It's like they just turned into a five billion dollar market cap in two months. How the hell did that happen so quick? People are forgetting that these are global markets with global participants. And when you have global participants in a marketplace, like things go up faster just because there's yeah. more, more net buying pressure. And so like yeah. all, comparing uh, physical nation state economies to digital nation state economies, it's almost apples to oranges. The digital ones are just going to be way bigger by definition of the fact that they are on the internet, which is the largest organization of humans of all time. Right? It's going to be, it's by definition going to be bigger than your nation state. It's all of the humans. Uh, and so, yeah, dude, a lot of local economies are really going to suffer because everyone's going to start working in the digital economies. And as soon as gaming economies turn massive, it's going to suck away so much capital and labor into the metaverse and away from the physical land. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase, 
And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at this bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it from my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Ave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. Dude, the value proposition is flipped. Like, I, I feel like people are starting to figure this out. If you can even build yourself a commu- of like 10,000, 20,000 followers on one of these platforms, you know, you could earn more money for most people than you were earning in your legacy corporate job. Um, yeah. doing, tr- doing things that you choose. Right, exactly. Now, here's a question that I have for you. Because the other, uh, I completely agree with you. I think you hit on this really important concept of being global um, with, with DAOs. And there's that question, right? Is this all just regulatory arbitrage? I think you can make a strong case that most internet companies were successful because of regulatory arbitrage, right? Uh, companies, no one wants to kill innovation. You kind of find ways to operate within the rules and eventually the rules change and whatever. The cycle goes on. But the global nature of this is like super, super important. Uh, DAOs as a coordination mechanism are fascinating to me because I believe in them so much, but at the same time, I see so many problems. <laughs> so like, yeah. the, you know, because like hierarchy, it's kind of useful, man. I, it's, it's useful. If you've been in an early stage startup, you need to know who's in charge. The buck has to stop with someone and everyone just being like, yeah, this is all working. Like we're all even. That, that goes so far. <laughs> Kumbaya, baby. Like, right. How do you see that all working out? I mean, you guys are young, young at Bankless too. Like, mm. I don't know, how does the governance structure work? You know, how do you... Right. What do you think about that governance challenge for DAOs in general? Yeah, I think people mistake. The fundamental problem here is that they're called DAOs. They're not DAOs. That's not what they are. They're digital organizations. They're not decentralized. They're not autonomous. They are an organization. But like in my mind, there's actually very, very few things out there that actually are DAOs. I think there's only like three of them that I can actually think of. That's Bitcoin is a DAO. It's a decentralized autonomous organization. Mm. Ethereum is a DAO. Uniswap, also a DAO. But like 
MakerDAO, well, there's human governance there. So like you can, if you want to be generous, you can say like, okay, well, if human incentives are involved, then that counts as being autonomous because like there's that line, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Okay, so if you bake in incentives into the governance, then may maybe Compound is a DAO, even though there's human input required, you can just count on that human input happening because of the incentives. But mm -hmm. like really with the OG vision of DAOs was contracts at the center and humans at the periphery where humans just engage with the contracts. And so we had decentralized Uber and all Uber is instead of a company, you have contracts and then people that drive cars and there's nothing else. That was the mm. OG vision of a DAO. And Uniswap fits that bill, right? All Uniswap is is contracts at the center and then human participants on the periphery. Yeah. DAOs as we are calling them, as in like people with a Discord channel and a token, <laughs> it's not a DAO. <laughs> it's just, it's a digital organization. And so like none of the rules really change except for that you don't have to file an LLC anywhere and that's about it, right? Like hierarchy, organization, like division of labor, like those rules did not change. <laughs> those are still the same rules. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you, dude. I'm completely with you. Um, you know what's funny? Like, I think this this idea really meant, it depends on the framework that you look at this space, right? I'll, I'll just be honest. I'm, the way that I look at this space is it's going to grow so much that allows you to like overlook some like very real and serious problems that happen in the present. And I think probably the most obvious manifestation of this debate was Tether. I have no special knowledge of Tether. I don't know if it was backed. I got to be honest with you. I don't really care because at the end of the day, like the worst outcome that could happen is like the market sells off like 50 or 60%. That already like that already happens and like we, you know it <laughs> it's a ceremony by this point yeah it's <laughs> like, a ceremony like day we've stole off 50 percent. you know what i mean and like look those people and my beef with the tether truthers is like i think behind all those people they just wanted they're looking for an excuse that's like my honest take you know right. they're just looking for something to to poke at and it's like dude you might be right they don't they don't want to discover that like the bidding pressure for bitcoin is there when tether's gone too yeah, man. I. It's just like, you might be right. Maybe it was a fraud. It doesn't matter, though, because right. this system is independent of Tether. And like in 10 years, yeah, correct. You will have been right. You will have gotten a lot of engagement on your tweets. But where will we be in 10 years? You know right. what I mean? Right. Um, There's a lot of just like cognitive dissonance about crypto. Like no one likes to admit that there was this thing that went 10,000x and you weren't a part of it. So like that's why I think Bitcoin actually receives a lot of flack with the whole like um, – uh, climate and climate issues mm. like people use like oh i didn't invest in bitcoin because it's destroying the planet like no you didn't you just missed it like you're just making an excuse after the fact um and so like they're like when assets go a thousand x and people missed it they hate those things like they just don't like them and they need yeah. to find like reasons to hate on them to justify their cognitive dissonance as to why they didn't invest on them all right i got another question for you here um <laughs> i'm just now just firing off questions what are the limits you think to decentralization in general, like as a governance form? How, how decentralized is too decentralized? Right. So you're saying that like um, Bitcoin and Ethereum, these things are supposed to be maximally decentralized. They're supposed to be an even playing field. And then that allows for like economies of scale to take over. And so like the biggest, this is why like Ethereans will say, well, ultimately proof of work will centralize around the most successful miners because of the inherent economies of scale of proof of work. And then Bitcoiners will say to Ethereans like, well, Proof of stake is just going to centralize around capital because the best capital will will win out. 
Right. Yeah. So there is that inevitable tension there. Um, and like to some degree, all of history are humans generating new institutions that are more fair than the previous ones. And then the previous ones crumble and then they all up on board to this new ship, sail this ship until it's not fair. And then they come mm-hmm. up with new solutions. And so like, totally agree. Our, our kids, our, our kids, or maybe our kids' kids are probably going to look at like Ethereum and Bitcoin and be like, well, there's this population of people that like got in at the very, very beginning and like, fuck you, dad. Like you bought, <laughs> you bought Ether when it was $80. It's now 11 bajillion dollars. How is that fair? Like, and so yeah, sure, there's going to be that. And then the wheel will turn, we'll break down these systems and we'll generate new ones. Mm-hmm. But for the time being, like society, like, we, we, we humans have like an extricable relationship with that uh, debt jubilees like debt yeah. jubilees are a part of our human human history it's a part of our dna we do these things every now and then uh and when we don't do them for long enough revolutions happen uh and that's bad and and like it goes from being a debt jubilee to like a a, a burn it all down and we'll just like we'll just we'll burn everything so no one has anything right and so that's kind right. of what we're doing with with crypto. We're not burning it down. We've actually been able to generate like a an arc for everyone to get on, and it's really really fair over here. And so it's it's kind of like a, it's just siphoning off all the all the attention and labor for where like all the W's, all the wins of the legacy Web two like banking world have already been claimed. Like those wins are are taken. Like the the monopoly board is full. The new monopoly board for Bitcoin and Ethereum is very, very empty. And so like people are like, well, there's this monopoly board where literally every single property is already owned or this other monopoly board where nothing is owned. Let's go there. And then we're going to play the game of monopoly and then it's going to saturate. And then there's going to be a frustrated population of people that cause like social uh, unrest and we'll figure out a new thing to replace crypto in like 80 to 100 years. And so like, no, we haven't fixed anything with crypto. We've just made a newer playing field. There are some technological innovations too. Um, but this playing field is a lot more enticing for a lot of people. I, I actually, I completely am with you. There's some, there's some like law of the universe where if something is designed too perfectly, then it's incompatible with humanity. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Bitcoin's design, man, is perfect. If we all didn't operate the way that we operate, uh, yeah, that would be perfect. I think behind every gold, gold bug in Bitcoin is a screaming desire that the world right. didn't operate in the way that it does, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, all right, I know we're we're winding down here on time, dude. You've been doing bankless. You and Ryan crush it. Uh, I have totally. I always give you credit, but I've co-opted the DeFi bullet uh, as a term. What are some of the most important like themes, ideas that you've taken away from hosting the podcast for that long? Yeah, I think the biggest theme, and crypto does a very good job exposing this. This, this rule, this law of the universe, existed before crypto, but I think crypto does a very good job of. Um, making everything, stripping everything naked and, and showing things as for what they are. Mm. And one thing that crypto does really, really well is it rewards legitimacy better than any other organizational structure that we've ever had. Uh, and so one of the things that I think Ryan and I have done really, really well is we've gone with legitimacy first. Um, we, uh, and so like all of our content is free. Uh, like we have the, these 20 minute debriefs that we uh, gate for premium subscribers. And so and then, uh, and then there's also parts of the market, the market Monday newsletter that is also paid, but like most of it's free and because we give it away for free. And then also at the same time, the way that we talk and how we think about things is with a legitimacy first focus. Uh, and legitimacy is something that it's a, it's a powerful social force. 
that it's a it's a real force. Uh, Vitalik always uses the example of there was uh, the time that Justin Sun bought out all the Steam tokens and Justin Justin Sun owned Steam, but then all the Steam users forked off Justin Sun and uh, deleted his tokens. And so, did Justin Sun really own the thing because he got he now he still owns the tokens, but all the Steam communities elsewhere, right? And so, the the metaphor is that like Justin Sun did not act with the legitimacy. And the social force around that uh, used used legitimacy to recreate uh, Steam in a different direction without Justin Sun. And so, if he didn't own the thing, he, he didn't actually own the thing by proving that the fact that he doesn't own the thing. And the, the reason why he didn't own it was because it wasn't legitimate. Uh, and and this is why like there's always the the concept of like I am the legitimate heir to the throne. And then there's like you know Game of Thrones happens and like we have five people vying for legitimacy. Only one person is actually legitimate. Anyways. When you, because we have like these transparent ledgers where we can see all of our society's assets, it also rewards a transparent society. And so the more transparent you are, the more legitimacy you get. And that's something that Ryan and I have done really, really well is we like, when you watch us on Bankless on the YouTube or on the podcast, like that is who we are. Like that you don't meet us in real life and be like, oh, you're totally different in real life. Like, nope, that's, that's, that's what you get. Uh, And so like, People, I think, value that, value the transparency that we bring to the show. Um, we, we, uh, so, yeah, we just do a very good job trying to be le- legitimate first. And uh, while, like, I, I, I'm also, like, joking with some of my, my Ethereum friends and, and all, my, all my other crypto friends is, like, at this point, like, if I had 10 times the amount of money that I have currently, like, my life would get about 10% better. Like, it wouldn't get all that much better. But what does make my life a lot better is social capital and having internet friends. Uh, and so, like, all of the legitimacy that we've gone for at Bankless has actually just turned into friends and social capital. People trust me. I enjoy people trusting me. I have more enriched social relationships because of that. And so, like, as a function of being a legitimacy-first, like, media platform, the, the, tail, the, the long tail of benefits has just been astronomical. And so as a guiding principle for everyone getting into the space, like you do better for yourself when you do legitimate things. And that means like yeah. no rug pulling, no shilling your bags, like none of the, none of the bullshit. Like you're still going to get rich regardless. You just got to hold on for a long time. And meanwhile, establish your legitimacy first and foremost. Yeah. I have one closing question for you. Um, it's based on like a personal experience of mine. And it also informs honestly what we're doing with permissionless. Cause my, like our value proposition of BlockWorks, I think is changing. I'm speaking this like real time here, just like thinking it out. My thesis getting, when we first got into crypto, you got in what, like 2017, 2018? Me too. I was class of 2017. And, you know, I was going around these conferences and you kind of knew back then. It was like, all right, there's really something here, but like this ludicrous horse, like freaking <laughs> coin. Like you, there's you something kinda... here, but not yet. <laughs> but not yet. Um, and, uh. But I was, you know, when I talked to people at conferences, I, I actually really vibed with the the TradFi people that were there. Mm-hmm. And they would say things like, you know, the arguments back then were like, uh, oh, we're going to tokenize assets and put it on the blockchain. Uh, and, uh, and like, that made a lot of sense to me because I was like, I don't think I was like fully red-pilled at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, okay, what you're saying makes sense. I don't need to like fully buy in. Uh, but like that, that sounds right and cool. Right. And I think I thought in the impending like 2018, 2019 period, if it ever came back, everyone would be like, oh my God. I was wrong. Uh, yeah, here uh, it's clearly working. There are real signs that we can point to. And, you know, we're somewhat there. 
But I've been kind of surprised that people are still like, they're just like, oh yeah, it's just another bubble. It's like, dude, how many times can it bubble before you stop saying that? And I think my viewpoint has shifted to where I'm not actually sure they're ever going to come in. It might just be a classic disruption thing. And maybe instead of crypto having to conform to legacy finance, it might actually be the other way around, the same way that it was the internet. And the internet came along with its own subculture. Right. And there are like a lot of parallels that you could find there. So I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, do you think I, I gave up trying to convince TradFi people so long ago? Because, like I said, some some of them don't want to be convinced. And there's uh, one. Uh, my old my old roommate was always like uh, he he would get frustrated that like Ethereum miners would use this term ROI when it came time to talk about um, how much time does it take for you to run your miner until you've paid back how much your miner costs. And so like the ROI was measured in time. Like ROI is six months. Where he got really frustrated. It's like ROI, no, like if you put in a hundred dollars and you get six hundred dollars out, you have a six X ROI. That's the correct version of and so he got frustrated. He's like, the crypto people need to figure out how to talk finance. Otherwise they're never you guys are never gonna convince the finance people to, to get to come over. And I was like, dude, like we don't need you guys. We don't need legacy finance people. We will build this stuff ourselves. We will build our own institutions. And so especially in the last like year or so, um, my my mind has totally shifted from like I'm not going to ask, like, hey, Wells Fargo, can you guys come and do DeFi stuff? Like, no. We're, we're just going to build around them, and if they want to come, they can. But, like, the institutions that we're creating today are the institutions of the future. We don't need old institutions to come and, like, mess with our stuff. We've got it figured out. We just need more time and more building, right? And so the institutions, the, it, it's all about creating new institutions. We don't want the old institutions. They're the things we're trying to escape from. Like, we don't want them. Like, actually, please stay over there. We'll take it from here because we've got, we've got the actual, of all the people that are optimistic about the future, you find them in crypto, right? Uh, and so, like, we, we have the right disposition. We have the right organizational tools. We just need more time to, to build out more, all of, like, the cool new things that we're already doing right. Also, it's just human capital in general. Like, I, I mean, one thing that might not be obvious if you're not operating in this industry, like, just the quality and the intelligence of people that are in this space. And crypto, I don't want it to be like this. It's starting to feel like this a little bit, that there's kind of like the old school, like infrastructure, uh, you know, kind of Bitcoin maxi uh, sort of crowd. And then there's the new school, like ETH, uh, you know, DeFi metaverse crowd. I don't want it to be like that. I kind of feel like that's maybe happening like a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I got to tell you, like the, the, the migration of human capital, especially into that latter group, the metaverse group, it's informing like a lot of decisions that I'm personally making at, at Blockworks, but also it's just, just my personal, just my personal opinion, man. I see, this is what I see people doing. Like, uh, doesn't take a genius. Like, and it should encourage you if you're listening to the show and being like, I'm not really sure. Like, I, it's not apparent on the surface sometimes, but the quality of people in this space is incredible. Yeah. And um, in addition to that, this space encourages us checking on other people, right? And so like mm -hmm. when somebody big and famous, like Ivan on tech, for example, big YouTuber, uh, was found out like just pumping and dumping against his followers. Mm -hmm. We all called him out on it, and now he's not really like one of us anymore. Like we checked mm -hmm. him on it, uh, mm -hmm. and so like not only is the talent really really awesome be because like there are no barriers to innovation, and so where does talent want to go? It wants to go where it can express itself, and then also the people check on everyone else here, right? Like we all make sure that like we're not doing the scammy rug pulley thing, uh, and so I like agree. it's just overall if you, if you are friendly, it's a friendly place to be. And in case you're thinking that's optimistic, uh, look at 
what happens when there have been DeFi hacks and people returning right. $600 million, man. I mean, why would you do that unless you were really concerned about your identity in, in this space? So, yeah. um, uh, David, people probably already know you, but like if they want to follow you, find out more about what you're doing at Bankless, what's the best way to do it? Yeah, you can follow Bankless. It's a Substack newsletter, so substack.bankless.com, I think that's right, or just type in Bankless. You can also follow me on Twitter at Trustless State. That's three S's in the middle. Um, it's, an, it's a reference towards a nation state in the clouds where you don't require trust, uh, which is more or less uh, early premonitions of the metaverse um, before I even thought about that. Uh, and so, yeah, Trustless State on, on Twitter. Uh, and then we're also on YouTube as well. Awesome, man. This has been a ton of fun. We'll have to do it again sometime soon. Thanks, Mike. Take care.